Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, coming up, you'll be hearing from Greg Smalley. He's in leadership at Focus on the Family and is the son of the late Gary Smalley. He has crafted a list of questions that fathers can ask their prospective sons-in-law. You can hear part of our recent conversation about that list. Next, from the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture, Jonathan Witt discusses a new video series that he has co-created, offering relevant principles regarding science and design. Plus, First Liberty has had some positive outcomes at the U.S. Supreme Court as of late, including the High Court finding a Veterans Memorial in Maryland in the shape of a cross to be constitutional and overturning a ruling from Oregon involving bakers who declined to be involved in a same-sex wedding ceremony. The High Court sent it back to the state court. You'll be hearing from Jeremy Dice of First Liberty with information on the ruling affecting the bakers, Aaron and Melissa Klein. And on this edition of The Intersection, more information on that Maryland Cross case is coming up with Travis Weber of Family Research Council with insight and information on the significance of the ruling. Finally, Emily Hibbert has traveled the world. Having visited all seven continents, she says her father was an inspiration to her in pursuing her dreams. She's also a filmmaker and has released a new documentary that extols outstanding work of fathers and the value of fatherhood. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Greg Smalley serves as Vice President of Marriage for Focus on the Family. He and his wife, Erin, are both part of that ministry. He has developed a list of questions, which were inspired by his own experience, that are intended to help fathers learn more about their sons-in-law when they wish to marry their daughters. Here now is Greg Smalley. So he called me. His name's Caleb. Caleb called me, and, and you could tell that he wanted to talk about something real serious, just his tone, the fact that he couldn't form full sentences. <laughs> <laughs> and he, and, and, and he said, I want to ask you about something really important. I said, are you going to ask me for my daughter's hand in marriage? And he kind of went, yeah. And I said, because we're not going to do that over the phone. And, <laughs> and so I actually bought him a ticket because I happened to be teaching a marriage seminar in a couple weeks. And, he, and so I flew him there. And, and whether this was mean or not, either way, I mean, he sat through one of the marriage seminars that I teach so that we could have kind of the, the evenings, just he and I, to, just to talk, to talk through. But honestly, when, when I thought about, okay, he's going to come and we're going to have a whole bunch of time to talk, I, I started freaking out thinking, I don't even know what I should ask him. Like, what are the right questions that, that I need to ask as he's going to ask for my daughter's hand in marriage? And that's really what, what, where this was born out of, these, these 12 questions that every dad, or in some cases, mom, that, that we should ask our future son-in-law. And, and what I did is I went to different um, men that I knew, respected, who had kind of gone through that already. And so I started a list, did a bunch of research, and, and, and finally came up with, with what, what I felt were these are the, the, the 12 most important things that we really need to, to ask this, this, our future son-in-law. Well, the first question, and this is so very, very important. You, you can't really underscore this enough, but the first question has to deal with the spiritual relationship and for Christian dads this is this is a big one isn't it it is are you are you united spiritually 
Because, you know, God, what I love is God gives us a free will to accept his free gift of salvation. God isn't a matchmaker. God doesn't run e-heavenly dating service. And, and I believe that, that he gives us full choice on, on who we want to marry. You know, and, and, and of course, we want to spend so much time in prayer and, and allowing God to guide us. But at the end of the day, this, this, he's given us free, free will, free choice. And, but the only thing, though, he does say, the only thing, time that he talks about kind of this premarital issue is, as a Christian, he expects us to marry another believer. And so, as he calls that, being equally yoked. And, and so, that's a big deal. God says that's a big deal, that, that Christians marry one another, um, or it creates a whole, yeah, just a whole host of, of challenges for this couple. And so because God says it's a big deal, that's where I wanted to start with with, with Caleb, and just understanding where he's at, and, and give me your testimony, and, and what does that relationship with the Lord look like? Um, what are things God's teaching you? And so just to explore that, just to, to hear his heart and what that ongoing relationship with the Lord looks like is such an important place for us to start as we have that conversation. And I would imagine you have more than a few parents that, that have a perception or an idea or an ideal in their minds about what they would like to see their daughter and or son have as far as a spiritual relationship with their future spouse. And I think you have to be really careful that a parent doesn't necessarily project expectations on their children in a, you know, in a way that's, that's not necessarily beneficial. What do you think? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Especially because, you know, for a, for a younger first time married couple, you know, like when, when I, was proposing to my wife 27 years ago. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was, what, 22. And, and how spiritually mature is a 22-year-old man, young man? And, and so the bottom line is I, I want to know that, that, that Caleb, um, you know, has given his life to God, that, that, that he is pursuing a relationship with the Lord, but that, that certainly that, that in, in his younger age that he's not going to have this you know, mature relationship with the Lord at that time. But that's why I just wanted to know, are, are, have you given your life to God, and are you pursuing a relationship with the Lord? And as long as he's doing that, I, I wasn't looking for maturity in that area knowing that he's going to grow and they'll be tested in, in, in all that. Greg Smalley here on The Intersection. You can access that list by going to FocusOnTheFamily.com and then type in the front slash followed by son-in-law with no hyphens. Well, next up, it's Jonathan Witt. He is Senior Fellow for the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture and co-creator of a video series called Science Uprising. In our recent conversation, he discussed the concept of the series, including evidence of design that's explored in it. Here now is Jonathan Witt. We had a follower or supporter of our intelligent design work named David Arabia. He's this young 30-ish-year-old guy in the cable film industry doing great, you know, camera work, video work, filmmaking work. Um, you can probably, if you watch cable television, you can see his uh, camera work on the History Channel show Mountain Men. Uh, but he had a passion 
for apologetics, for the evidence for design and nature. I wanted to use his gifts uh, and his contacts in the, the film production industry to do something different, do something uh, kind of more fast-paced than we've done before in terms of our films. We've done documentaries. We've had, had uh, ID films on, on PBS. He wanted to do something that was really focused on young adults. And so he came to us, and, and he was, had actually raised some money, and he said, I want your brain trust. Uh, I want your expertise with scripting, uh, but I wanna, want us to work together, iron sharpen iron, uh, get your experts um, sitting down, interviewing them. So let's work together. So a partnership was born, and the result are these six- to eight-minute, fast-paced, very highly produced, uh, fun science uprising videos that, as you say, we're releasing uh, every Monday uh, into July. So what would you say would be the concept of this overall series? The content is just making good intelligent design arguments based on evidence in nature, countering some of the uh, the claims of, of atheists who say, oh, you know, nature uh, suggests that the universe is purposeless, meaningless, humans are just uh, meat robots. So we push back against that, but we do it, and we have this fun framework where I don't know if uh, any of our, uh, your listeners have seen the film V is for Vendetta or this recent uh, series on the USA Network um, Colony uh, with Josh Holloway, one, one of the actors from, from the Lost series. Uh, but they have, have uh, you know, this totalitarian society, and then the, the people fighting it, they will hack into the video streams, which are you know constantly giving the propaganda for the state. They'll hack in and give the contrary message. So we have this masked host uh, that uh, hacks into all the propaganda that you see on, on TV, on nature documentaries that kids get in their, their biology classrooms, hacks in and starts asking questions. Well, uh, how do we know that? How do we, when Carl Sagan says famously on his Cosmos series, the universe is all there is or ever was or ever will be, how do we know that? So, so this, this uh, puckish uh, masked host comes on uh, ask tough questions, and then we transition to some of our experts. And we have some really great experts in the show. You really attempt in this series to dispute these these streams of thought, such as, for instance, the universe is blind and purposeless, diversity of life on Earth arose through blind forces, or the the whole concept that we as humans are all just meat machines as apparently you've got noted atheists that are saying that so uh, so yeah, yeah, like, how yeah, do you Jerry counter Coyne, that he's a noted atheist who says i'm going to try to convince you that you are essentially a robot made out of meat you don't have any free will you're just a product of natural selection your genes your genetics so free will morality uh, all these things those are an illusion he's saying so we push back and say no there's there's evidence besides your common sense your strong visceral sense that you do have freedom of choice that there is morality there is good and evil there's there's scientific reasons as well uh and and just good logical reasons so we we go through those we have some great experts that talk through that um yeah it's 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 a, it's a lot of fun um to do it in this new style but but with but with some arguments that are both ancient uh and then some cutting edge science that we're bringing to bear too origin science uses uh, or the historical sciences like archaeology use a little bit different methodology from, say, you know, somebody doing chemistry in a lab. Um, and then there are implications of scientific discoveries. Uh, so, so even if you say, 
maybe science itself isn't going to tell us what's good or evil. It's more about the is than the ought. It can uh, give us evidence that we uh, were designed, that we're not purely the products of, of blind, random processes, that that mind is not reducible to brain, uh, that there's something beyond just our physical bodies, uh, mind, spirit, soul. There's actually scientific evidence of that. And then those things become support for the you know, traditional theistic view of humans as as something unique, as having moral capacity, as having freedom. Jonathan Witt here on The Intersection. Learn more by going to the website scienceuprising.com. Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's Deputy General Counsel for First Liberty, Jeremy Dice, who discussed the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court to vacate an Oregon state court ruling against Aaron and Melissa Klein, the bakers from that state who had declined to provide a cake for a same-sex wedding ceremony. The case has been sent back to the Oregon courts for reconsideration in light of the high court's masterpiece decision. From that conversation, this is Jeremy Dice. The action that the Supreme Court took is clearly a victory, and let me explain why that is. What they did is is a is a technical remedy called a, a grant, vacate, and remand. Or if you want to sound really cool, we just say GVR. <laughs> All right. And that that GVR means three different ways that the the declines won. Number one, they granted their petition. They the court basically said we agree that something happened to Aaron and Melissa Klein that should not have happened, and that's that's really important. Yeah. It takes five justices of the Supreme Court to vote in favor of this particular remedy. So you've got a majority of the Supreme Court that agreed that this petition had merit. That's that's really important. And and second, the vacate part says that uh, they disagreed with what the lower court actually did. And they they thought that it was wrongly decided. And so they didn't just say, yeah, it's overturned. They said it's gone. It's as if it never even existed. It's vacant. It is gone. And so that's a really important step as well. Again, a majority of the Supreme Court said that that was wrongly decided, sending a message to lower courts everywhere that you shouldn't decide like the Oregon Court of Appeals did. That, that's that's quite important and, and a substantial victory in and of itself. But the court didn't stop there. They they sent it back. That's the remand part. And not only did they say do it again, they said do it again. And by the way, this time we want you to follow the law. And that law is Masterpiece Cake Shop, which is that case from last year involving Jack Phillips out of Colorado. Well, why would the court point to that case in particular? Well, I think there's only two good reasons that they would do so, because the thrust of that opinion is that people of faith that are entering in the marketplace, when they're accused of discrimination like this, must be treated fairly, and they must be treated without the religious hostility that comes so often from city councilmen or or state officials like the commissioner in this case in, in, uh, in Oregon. And so somebody of the Supreme Court had looked through that entire record and said, you know what, Aaron and Melissa did not get a fair shake, and there's evidence here of anti-religion hostility or hostility towards the religious beliefs of Aaron and Melissa Klein. And so they, they needed to send that back down there and say, look at this all again. We think there's something to this complaint, and, uh, and, and, and tell us, you know, apply the masterpiece test and see if they will actually pass, they being the state of Oregon, will pass that test. Uh, we think we've got good arguments about why the, the state of Oregon has, in fact, failed the masterpiece test and will fail the masterpiece test here in the case of Aaron and Melissa Klein. That's a significant amount of money for mm-hmm. anybody, but especially for the clients. And that's why, again, we think when we go back to the Oregon Court of Appeals, we're going to point to that penalty and say, look, $135,000 for what amounts to, quote, emotional damages in this case, it's one of the highest damage awards given by Bully in its entire existence. It is almost clear evidence 
of hostility towards the religious beliefs of Aaron and Melissa Klein. But if that's not enough, look, there, there's evidence that this was an unfair process. Before he even got the case, now former Commissioner Brad Avakian of the Bureau of Labor and Industries in Oregon, he said that he was looking forward to reviewing this case because he thought that Aaron and Melissa needed to be rehabilitated. <laughs> rehabilitated? My wow. gracious. An American citizen professing their religious beliefs and doing their business according to it needs to be rehabilitated? But it goes even worse than that. Not only was that a clearly prejudged, unfair process, it, once he got into the process and evaluated it, he made his decision. And then he instituted a gag order on Aaron and Melissa Klein. They weren't even allowed to talk about the situation to their friends. Anywhere in public, they couldn't talk about what had happened. They had to go to the Oregon Court of Appeals to have that vacated. But the mere fact that they had a, a gag order put on their, their speech is just absolutely mm. outrageous. And, and I think, again, evidence that this was not only an unfair process, where the judge of the case is basically saying they need to be rehabilitated and I'm going to make sure they do, uh, they, then they went further to penalize them and then to gag them as well. Uh, look, the, the Supreme Court understands exactly what's going on here, and I think they have demonstrated to the rest of the country that they're not going to put up with uh, county commissions or civil rights commissions or whomever these administrative agencies are that are reviewing these, these claims of discrimination going in there as a kangaroo court trying to convict people before they even walk through the door and have their day in court. They want at least, at a bare minimum, a fair process for people who are accused of discrimination. Right now, they're not receiving that, and Aaron and Melissa Klein certainly did not as well. So we're eager to bring that case back to the Oregon uh, Court of Appeals and have them evaluate the, the situation with Aaron and Melissa in light of Masterpiece Cake Shop. Jeremy Dice here on this edition of The Intersection. Learn more through the website first, spell it out, firstliberty.org. This is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests from The Intersection. You can also find The Intersection Podcast in The Media Center, and you can subscribe to it via iTunes. Two blogs are accessible through the homepage. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there is a link to video content. Content from The Meeting House program can be found through the Faith Radio app. Learn more when you visit the website faithradio.org. Content is also available through a number of other apps, and you can learn more through the Meeting House homepage. Well, next on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Travis Weber, Vice President of Policy and Director of the Center for Religious Liberty at Family Research Council. He discussed with me the U.S. Supreme Court ruling about the Peace Cross, a veterans memorial in Bladensburg, Maryland, which was found to be constitutional by the High Court. Here now is Travis Weber. This case, you know, it arose out of a challenge by the American Humanist Association to a large cross-shaped memorial in Bladensburg. Um, it's been there for nearly 100 years, and, and you know, only recently has the uh, organization, American Humanist Association, decided to challenge it, um, you know, basically uh, because they don't like a religious symbol in the public square. Um, they brought an establishment claim, uh, establishment clause claim, uh, asserting that, um, you know, this violated the First Amendment's prohibition on the government establishing a religion. 
you know, I think it's a silly claim, but nevertheless, because we have a number of cases on the books um, in recent years that uh, misinterpret, I would, I would say, misinterpret the Establishment Clause, uh, we have dealt with a situation where the courts have often struck down um, or, or ruled unconstitutional certain public religious uh, monuments and other religious expression that's associated with the government. In this case, the memorial was on government land, and so that was the hook there. Uh, the case wound its way through the, the federal district court, um, which returned a ruling for the cross. The appeals court overturned that, and the U.S. Supreme Court reversed that in a ruling, which heavily looked to the historical significance of this memorial and its cross shape, and um, basically held that uh, when something's rooted in history like this, um, it does not violate the Establishment Clause. The ruling was not very strong, but nevertheless a step in the right direction, and there were indications that um, the Establishment Clause jurisprudence could be more cleaned up as we move ahead. So the Family Research Council filed an amicus or friend of the court brief in the case. What were some of your contentions as you entered the case in this way? Yeah, so we did file an amicus brief um, claiming that um, religion naturally manifests itself in community, in local communities. Um, this is significant because obviously um, th those uh, commemorating the, th those who their family members who'd passed away in World War I, in this case, chose this shape of a cross for their commemoration. It was a local uh, decision, and the locality, the Bladensburg um, community, should be permitted to, to commemorate its folks that way. Um, you know, and this is this is an important point to highlight, as these, as as often arises in these cases. The other the other main point that we made was that um, religious faith is inter intertwined with military service, and it's very difficult to separate it, perhaps more so than other areas of society. So we thought those are important points for the court to keep in mind as it looks at this case. Um, you know, a number of other amicus briefs held uh, raised other points. The parties arguing the case, um, one of which is. First Liberty Institute from Texas representing the American Legion defending the cross um, made a number of different arguments about the Establishment Clause itself, obviously. Um, but, you know, so our, our amicus involvement was driven by um, uh, the, 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 the nature of, of this public fight over a religious symbol in public square. We believe it's very important that Americans can continue to express themselves in, in the public square on matters of religion, and they can do so in a community matter such as this, and highlighting the religious or the um, the military element of this case, the fact that this public religious expression is often important in the military context. These are important matters for FRC, so that's what led us to file the brief. Um, we're obviously glad to see this result, but as I pointed out in my entry in the SCOTUS blog, a symposium on the case titled American Legion Lays the Groundwork for the Downfall of Lemon. Um, you know, there, there's going to be more work to be done, and we're looking ahead for this area of law to, to be cleaned up. And I talk about that in my, in my blog. Travis Weber here on The Intersection. The Family Research Council website is frc.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's filmmaker Emily Hibbard, producer of Honor Project Documentary. She shared with me about the role of fathers and the potential positive influence they can have. The documentary highlights various fathers and how they have had an impact. From that recent conversation, this is Emily Hibbard. Three main factors. One, my dad. My parents have been married for coming up on 45 years. So I grew right. up in a two-parent home that I just, I had a great childhood. Um, also, 
for the last 15 years, I've been working with women transitioning out of the adult entertainment industry. Uh, we run a faith-based program uh, with a friend of mine who has come out of pornography here in the Los Angeles area, and she started a ministry. And so for the past 15 years, we've been watching women leave that lifestyle. And one of the things that I've seen that they all have in common is that they all have really bad relationships with their fathers. That has always stood out to me. And then the the third thing is the current climate that we're seeing, not only in our own country, but around the world with phrases like toxic masculinity mm. and that men are somehow bad or negative. And so Honor Project Documentary is my way of pushing back on that and saying, I disagree. So was was that kind of the impetus to do this documentary? Because, of course, with the Me Too movement, we've seen one of those phrases that you just highlighted, toxic masculinity. There has been some some negative opinions that have been expressed about men and even masculinity in general. Was that kind of the tipping point for you to say, hey, I want to get out there and, and kind of counter this narrative? Absolutely. Absolutely. My world, my entire life has been surrounded by wonderful men, wonderful, strong men, unapologetically. They've, they've been strong. They've been protective. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, uh, uncles, cousins, neighbors, I am the product of strong men. And hearing how men are so bad and violent and this and that, and don't get me wrong, there's some clowns out there. And I've had sure. some clowns in my life. But it's really easy to identify clowns when you're surrounded by uh, by really great men. So as you put together the Honor Project, how did you, and I guess before asking you how you selected those who are portrayed in this documentary, when you talk about the overall concept, it does profile a number of different fathers. So give us a little bit more information about the concept of the documentary itself. Well, the 15 of the 20 dads were personal friends of mine, uh, my own father included. And then there were about five guys from a group called the L.A. Dads Group, which is a local chapter of a larger organization called City Dads, that they have uh, chapters in about 35 countries, 35 cities around the country. And what we wanted to do was just ask very targeted questions and get their perspective on what it's like to be a dad, what it's like to be a guy. And it was interesting their responses when I would ask them straight out to define masculinity because all of their eyes ping pong balled out and they raised their eyebrows and they kind of whispered to me, Em, I'm not supposed to answer this. I'm not supposed to have an opinion on this. And after a little coaxing, they would answer it. <laughs> but it was interesting how hesitant they were to, to broach that subject. How is the faith element integrated into the Honor Project documentary? It's, we had to use a lot of wisdom. Um, mm -hmm. We didn't want to make a project that was overtly Christian because we didn't want to exclude men who are possibly not pursuing faith at this time. We really did want to welcome all men and uh, all faiths into this. 15 out of the 20 guys are born-again believers. I know many of them from church. Um, you know, men like uh, Brock Taney or Phil Cook are married to women who have been mentoring me for a number of years. So this project was very faith-based, but we had to do it in a way that wouldn't be categorized as simply a religious project and, and handed off to, to the side. So, and, and, and that's working for us, because what, one of the things that we're seeing is a number of organizations and groups who want to incorporate this 
uh, into their programs because it's so father positive and it's not overtly religious, even though myself and a number of the fathers are Christians. Emily Hibbard here on The Intersection. Find out more through honorprojectmovie.com. We are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You will find a link to the Media Center where you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection. The Intersection Podcast is also found in the Media Center and you can subscribe to it via iTunes. When you visit the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter at Access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there is a link to video content. You can find content from the Meeting House program not only through the website, but also through the Faith Radio app. Learn more about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet when you go to faithradio.org. Content is also available through a number of other apps. You can see a listing at meetinghouseonline.info. Well, thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.